So this week, church, we start a new series, which is called Becoming. You can see it here. I don't know if you can see this picture well enough, but you see a man here. You see just his back, and he's staring out kind of into this sea of stars. And um, it's a very appropriate image because he's, he's looking at what's before him, at something that's maybe in the future, coming up ahead. And even the title of this series is, is called Becoming. You know, there's something that we all go through when we're growing up. We all wonder what we want to be. What do I want to be when I grow up? And I know for many children, if you raise kids, they probably said things like, I want to be a professional athlete, right? A football player, a softball player, a baseball player, a volleyball player, or a veterinarian. I had a child in my house, even that was her dream to be a veterinarian. Kids often love animals and how many of you have heard your kids say, I would love to be a veterinarian or, or an actor, right? A musician. Uh, music is often a big influencer in people's life and they want to be and pursue that career of being a musician. And when you're young, how many of you know all those things are possible, right? And that they're real dreams. For me, when I was younger, um, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to go to space. Uh, probably the Star Wars influence in my life as a young person to go out and explore other worlds and other planets and the stars. That was kind of my dream. Um, but, you know, when, you, when your teen years come around, those, I, those questions of who do I want to be get mixed in more with the question of who am I? And who am I as a person? And that's a difficult thing to answer. We wrestle with that question. We process it. We sometimes go in circles and... Sometimes it's pressuring when other people are trying to define you and answer that question for you. And the interesting thing about being a teenager is that after four years of high school or after four years of college, um, those questions don't magically go away, right? I mean, we often wrestle with these questions for our lifetime. Who am I? What am I becoming? And that's what we're tackling in this series in the book of Philippians. That question, those two particularly, who am I and what am I becoming? Um, we need to process those questions. We need to be aware of where we are in our reality when it comes to those two questions. And we need to be reminded of those questions, particularly in difficult seasons. Particularly um, when things go sideways and we're in trials, when we're in trouble when we're in the middle of loss or grief or failure, um, the essence of who we are and maybe the reality we've constructed of the person that we are, when we encounter trouble, sometimes uh, falls apart, sometimes collapses, and we lose sight of who we are. And in those moments, it's, it's easy to let doubt and to let cynicism, to let bitterness arise in us and sometimes that bitterness even gets translated to God and we begin to ask God, who are you? And what are you doing? Are you even there? Do you care about me? Do you see me? These are real questions that we deal with, especially in times of trouble. When I think of 2020, and living through a pandemic and the social distancing and the toxic culture of our society with elections and uh, social strife and, and protests, it's easy to say, God, where are you and who am I in all this? And, 
and how do I define myself, the fractured relationships, and carrying a little bit of this unknown into 2021. Lord, is this pandemic even going to carry on for another year? We could lose sight of this and ask, God, who are you? God, are you there? God, who am I? What am I becoming? Wouldn't it be great to have an answer to all of that? Wouldn't it be great to have a clear, confident answer when the question comes up of who am I? And who is God? And what are you doing? Wouldn't it be great to have an answer, scripturally sound, rooted in the word, to give you the peace, the hope, the confidence, the trust that you need in those times. Well, in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a group of people who are struggling with the very same issues that me and you are struggling today. And we see from this letter that he helps them answer those questions of who am I? Who am I becoming? Who is God? And what is he doing? And we learn through this book of Philippians that God's answer to those questions are always better to our answers to those questions. Much more clear, much more hopeful, and much more meaningful to our lives. God answers to our deepest questions are better than our answers to those questions. So here's a big idea that we're going to be going through in this entire series in the book of Philippians. So uh, as we go through this series together, and today we'll be in the first chapter, uh, here's the big idea that I want us to think through. God is always working. He's always working. We're, that's the big idea of today's message. And really the whole series is that God is always working. He works in us to answer the questions of who God is. God, who are you? He works in us so that we have that answer to that question. And God, what are you doing? And he also helps us answer the questions of God, who am I? And what am I becoming? What am I becoming? So these are the, the, the questions that God answers for us. These questions that are so essential in our life. God answers these questions in the book of Philippians. So let's dive into it. I'm really excited today for, uh, for this first part. Again, we are in chapter number one. Uh, we're going to be from verse three to verse 11 today. Um, so I invite you to get into your word and to dig into these questions of who are you? Who are you becoming? And who is God, and what is he doing in your life? Amen? All right. You know, one of my favorite cities to visit of all time is San Francisco. Uh, there's something unique about San Francisco. Have you ever been there? It's just a very unique, awesome place to visit. If you've never been, make some time, make a trip, go to San Francisco. But one of my favorite parts of visiting San Francisco, I was able to go a few years ago with a school trip actually, my, with my daughter with me, which made it very, very nice, um, was visiting the Alcatraz prison. I have a picture here of us on the ferry boat uh, going out to visit Alcatraz. Now, Alcatraz is an island that's in San Francisco Bay. It's about two miles from, from San Francisco. Um, it's called The Rock because it's an island and it's surrounded by water, and that's what made it one of the most secure prisons. Um, you can see another picture here of just how far it is from the bay, here are some students of mine, and they're looking from Alcatraz towards San Francisco. So you can see San Francisco back here in the background. There's the Bay Bridge on one side, and you probably can't see it, but the Golden Gate Bridge on the other end over there. 
Um, and I was able to tour the prison and be in the prison, even visit the yard where, where the prisoners hung out, which was very neat. They had a little baseball field here. Um, and this is what the steps where the prisoners would sit and kind of look out at the bay, uh, wishing that they were in the city across the, the bay. Um, and the cells of the prison were famous for being very tiny. And I know you're probably thinking, some of you who remember the movie, The Escape from Alcatraz, this is the actual cell where they dug out the vent uh, to escape. I was able to see the actual cell where that happened, and it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing. But one of the parts of Alcatraz that really just blew my mind was the solitary confinement cells. You could see them here. They're totally dark. They're totally black. No lights. Uh, there's not even a bed in there. Prisoners were pretty much just lay on the floor with, with a mat. Um, and it was totally confined. They were dark. They were dingy. Uh, they were pretty desperate, honestly. And just to give you context, I have another picture here of me standing in, this, in the, the doorway. You could see uh, I barely fit in the doorway of the solitary confinement cell at Alcatraz Prison. Um, and why am I mentioning Alcatraz? Well, there was um, many famous people who stayed there, right? Al Capone, uh, the Birdman, and of course, a young Clint Eastwood, right? A young Clint Eastwood uh, stayed in the, um, in the prison as well uh, from the movie. Well, he really didn't stay there. He acted in the prison in the movie Escape from Alcatraz. That's just a joke. He wasn't really a prisoner there, but he played one. In a movie. But why am I mentioning this? Well, because in the book of Philippians, Paul wrote this letter while in prison. Um, and it was a very tough prison. I actually have a picture here of what the prison could have looked like. You can see here uh, the prison entrance was this door, it was made of stone, and the prisoners didn't stay in the cell, they actually stayed in a hole beneath the cell, kind of in a sewer space. And some people believe, there's two thoughts, one that Paul wrote this letter from this type of environment. Um, not only was he in a jail cell, but he was chained to a Roman guard. That we know for sure. Imagine having your wrist or your ankle, we're not sure what, tied to a Roman guard and being stuck together. And whatever he needed to move, whatever he needed to do anything, he would need to ask permission. Now, there's another thought that maybe it was a lighter kind of house arrest situation. But in either context, Paul is imprisoned. Paul is struggling. And yet Paul writes this amazing, encouraging letter to the church um, to encourage them to be joyful in all situations. That God is always working, even in the middle of a prison sentence, even in the middle of everything that Paul had been through. And when you think of Paul... And everything he went through, in 2 Corinthians actually, Paul, not to brag, but he writes to uh, the church. And this is what he says in the 2 Corinthians. He says, you know, I've been put in prison more often, been whipped uh, times without number. I faced death again and again, right? Uh, five different times I I've been given 39 lashes to the back. So he was flogged. Uh, he's been beaten with rods. Uh, which were like reed sticks that would rip the skin off uh, off your back when you were hit with them. He's been uh, stoned. Uh, he's been shipwrecked uh, and even spent the night drifting in the middle of the ocean. Here is this man who had suffered immensely for the gospel, yet had it in him. 
the joy, the perseverance, the focus to write this letter that is encouraging you and me today, 2,000 years later. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking, how do you do that? How do you stay so encouraged, so joyful in the midst of all this that you could write this letter that teaches us to say, hey, be joyful in all circumstances, right? We think that the letter of Philippians is just about joy, and it is. However, there's so much more there. But I believe that Paul, when he wrote this verse, in verse number six of chapter one of Philippians, this was, was, was on Paul's heart as he writes this letter. This was why he was able to write this letter. And this is our key verse. For this whole series, we will keep coming back to this idea that God is always working. Look at the words of Paul. He says, I am certain, certain, full confidence, 100% certain that God, who began the good work within you, God who is started this work in you, will continue to work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Paul says, I am able even in a prison cell to have joy and to have faith because I know God is always working. God is always working. And he's working on you and he's working on me and together he's working on us. And that's what gives joy to Paul. That's what gives him this confidence. He is certain. So the big idea here is that God is always on the clock. He's always, always working. He's always working. We get tired. We work a few hours. We need coffee. We need to take a break. We need to lay down. Hey, if you work a lot of overtime, you might need some days off. And if you go working months, hey, we even need a vacation. But God never punches out of the clock. God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. God never changes. He doesn't go away. He isn't overwhelmed. He never gets distracted. He never breaks a sweat. God is always on the job and God is always working. Praise the Lord for that. As Paul is certain that God is doing that, so should we be certain. Um, when we have this confidence that God is always on the clock, that God is always working, it should fill our faith for us to say, look, Lord, I mean, I might not know what you're doing, but I know you're working in me. And if you're working in me, I can't check out. God, if you're still working in me, I'm not done. Even in the impossible situations like Paul was living in here, tied to a Roman guard, imprisoned, after everything he had suffered for the gospel, Paul says, God, I know you're always on the clock. I know you're always working. And that gave him the boost that he needed. You see, Paul was not confident in himself. Paul was not confident in others around him or his situation. But Paul was confident in the Lord. He was confident in God. That God, you're always working. You're always on the clock. And if you're working, I'm going to work right alongside with you. He wasn't fixed on his circumstances, wasn't fixed on the issues, wasn't fixed on the prison cell, wasn't fixed on the Roman guard. His eyes were fixed on Christ. So that's what defined him. That's what broke the limits that were put on him. That's what his focus was at. He kept his eyes fixed on God. 
And it gave him the confidence that he needed, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of prison. Like Hebrews 12 says, let us run the race with endurance that God has set before us. We do this by what? Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Our minds are fixed on him. Life is a race, church. And in the race, there's going to be hills. There's going to be pits where you have to run through the mud and it feels like you're getting nowhere. Your legs are going to burn. Your back is going to ache. You're going to be asking yourself, when does this end? When will I reach the finish line? When will I achieve something? Is anyone even running with me? How do we run this race? You keep your eyes fixed. Keep your eyes on Jesus. This says he's the champion who initiates. He starts up, he kickstarts, and he perfects. He grows, he matures our faith so that we have strength, that we have confidence to know that he is always working and he's working on us. That's a good word. God is always working. He's working on us. So what is your prison? Maybe you feel trapped, especially on a day like today, like Paul felt trapped. God is not done with you. The presence of God in difficult times means that God is with you. It, does, it means that God hasn't checked out, that God is not aware, that God doesn't know what's happening in your life. This reality of huge trials and suffering that some of us are going through doesn't mean that God isn't there. Uh, he's there, and He's with you, and He's working. Now, as much as we need to know that God is always working, we also need to know, well, God, what are you working on? Okay, God, I understand you're at work, but what are you working on, God? That's, that's another question. Who is God? God is always working. But God, what are you doing? And God is always working. And here's the truth. He's working on the person you are becoming. If you want to know what God is working on, let me tell you. He's working on the person that you're becoming. That means you are under construction. That God is still at work in your life. I want you to read with me along here as Paul writes in verse 9 of chapter 1 of Philippians. And this is his prayer for the church. I want us to listen to Paul's words here. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more. This is his prayer. That you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters. What really matters, he says, I want you to understand. In verse 10 he says, For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. In verse 11 it says, May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. So Paul is saying here, I want us to go back and we can go back to verse 9. He says, I pray. This is Paul's prayer here for the church. He's saying, when I think of you all, I believe Paul is saying this to the church today. When I think 
of the church today. He says, when I think of you all, I'm calling out to God. I'm pressing into God on your behalf because he's always working. Because God is always working on who you are. And God, he's saying here, I want you to keep growing. I want you to mature. He's saying, I want you to be more like Christ. So that you can learn what really matters because life and what comes with life is not what's meaningful. What really matters is following Christ and living for Him. Grow in this, he says. Grow in knowledge and understanding so you can understand what really matters. So that the outward expression of your life can be full of purity and be without blame. You see, when we come to Christ... When we accept Jesus into our hearts, a new identity comes in. A new person is born within us. This is what the Bible calls being born again. We become babies in the faith. And yes, we might be fully grown adults, but in faith we're like children. We're born again. We're brand new. We have to keep growing and maturing and becoming more like Jesus. We start off as babies in the faith, but we cannot stay there. We're not meant to stay as babies in the faith. We have to grow, we have to mature, get knowledge, get understanding, so that Christ can begin to be displayed through the way we live. The sad fact is this, church, that many people, uh, socially, spiritually, uh, they grow old, they grow old physically, but they don't grow up spiritually. And that's a mismatch. And it's a sad reality to see someone who's grown up physically but hasn't grown up spiritually, maturity-wise. And it kind of looks like this. Uh, these kids who are dressed like old people. This is a cute picture. I mean, come on. you got to admit, this is a cute picture. Look at these little babies dressed like old people. But it's kind of weird and this is how some people are, right? On the outside, they have gray hair, they've grown up, they've grown physically, but on the inside, spiritually, they're still babies. And Paul is encouraging us to say, hey, God is working on you. He wants to grow you. He wants to mature you. He wants to grow you physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. We come in as babies in the faith, but we cannot stay here. This is a cute picture, but it's a sad spiritual reality. Age and maturity are not the same. They're not the same in the physical realm. There's some very grown-up people who you know who are probably some of the most immature. The same spiritually. Okay, you could be 10, 12 years in the faith, but... You've got to grow. Got to grow in understanding. Got to grow in knowledge. And you've got to come to understand what really matters so that your life can show the love of Christ. It's funny here that Paul mentions that he wants our love to overflow. But he wants our love not so much to be an emotional love. Paul is not speaking about an emotional love. He's speaking about a love that thinks. About a love that, that understands. A love that grows um, in knowledge. That's the kind of love that, that Paul is speaking that you need to grow in. And genuine Christian love uh, that's rooted in love for God and love for others 
is also rooted in a desire to know God on a deeper level, to want to go deeper with Him, to want to mature, to want to know God's ways, God's word, and God's will. When we come to Christ, new in the faith, we're never meant to stay there. And Paul is writing to the church to say, God is always working. He's working on the person you're becoming. And the person that you're becoming should be a person whose life exemplifies Christ. That you could be pure, as it said there in verse 9. So that you could be pure, right? Pure means that you have no hidden motives, that you have no hidden desires. Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart. Paul says that you could live a life that's blameless, that's blameless. That means that you don't have fault, that you don't have blemish. It doesn't mean you're a perfect person, but it means that when you sin, you confess to God, as it says in 1 John, that if we confess our sin to him, that he is faithful and just to forgive us. And then Paul writes in verse 11 that he wants our life to overflow with righteousness, that the character of Christ would come and burst out of us. And Colossians remind us, reminds us that we should walk, that we should live in a way that's worthy of the gospel, in a way that's worthy of Christ. So Paul is not praying here for their situations. He's not praying for their prison. What he is praying for is for their person. Not praying for their prison situation, but he's praying for their person. And here's why that's important. Because even when you're in a prison, not an actual prison, but um, an emotional prison, a spiritual prison, uh, it could be uh, a relational prison, even when you're in prison, God still works on your person. Interesting that Paul doesn't focus on the prison. He focuses on the person. And that's what God works on. He works on the person so even though the person is in prison, God's purpose could be alive in you. Man, that's a good word. That's encouraging because God is always on the clock. He wants us to become his children, even in the worst of circumstances, to be more like him, even in the midst of everything that's going on. That's why in Philippians 1.27, later on in this chapter, Paul says, above all, Above everything else, above your prison moments, above your desert moments, or your moments of trouble, trial, and tribulation, above all, above everything else, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, hey, your person matters. Why does the person matter? Because God works on your person, and God is always on the clock. Now, God is always working on who are we becoming, but it goes much wider than that. It goes much wider than that. The other thing that God is working on is God is always working, and he is working on the community that we are becoming. Not only is he working on you as a person, but as he works on you as the person, he's working on us as his people. So it's not only you as a person, it's us, we, as a people, as a community of faith. Now, I intentionally skipped over the first eight verses of chapter one on purpose because I wanted to start off with the big idea that God is always working. We get that from verse number six. Then I wanted us to, to focus in on the idea that God works in us as a person, 
from verse 9 through 11. Uh, now I want to backtrack a little bit to verse 3. Paul begins the letter by giving two introductory uh, general statement verses in 1 and 2. But in verse 3, I want us to read here how he emphasizes the idea of community, of a community of faith, of the church. And I want you to see Paul's deep love for the church. I want you to notice how thankful he is for the church, how joyfully he prays for them, how he holds them in such a special place in his heart that he encourages them this way. And this here is the manner in which we should hold the church. Because when Christ works you at, on you as a person, he doesn't do that exclusively just for you. He doesn't do that so you could be in exclusion. He does that so you could work in inclusion in a community of faith. God never works in, for, in your life just for you. He works in your life for others, for the benefit of others, for your family, for your friends, for your neighborhood, and yes, for your church. This is so important. Look at Paul's language here. He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy, the joyful prayer of Paul. For you have been my partners. That's a key word there. My partners. You have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. In verse 7. We'll skip over verse 6. We already got verse 6. Verse 7 he says, So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you. He's affirming the deep love and special place that this community has in his heart. He says, For you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Let's go back to verse, right here, verse 5, where Paul calls the church his partners. These were not just, hey, what's up, acquaintances. These were not just passerbys. These were not just associates, you know, loose friends. These were his partners. Paul was connected to them. As they grew spiritually, Paul would grow spiritually. Paul's letters were encouraging, motivating pushing the church forward. Paul here is telling the church, hey, we are connected. We share the favor of God. And I love you so much. I long to be with you. My heart burns for community. My heart burns for us to be together. Uh, there was a mutual investment here going back and forth, a transactional relationship, not just a one-way Hey, Paul, encourage me that I'm going to live life in my own little bubble because that's exclusionary. Paul is saying our life is transactional. My letter encourages you. My prayers encourage you. Your prayers and your works encourage me even when I'm in prison. You see, when God works on us as a community, 
He's taking us to a special place where we become his ambassadors, his people, his workmanship created for good works before the beginning of time. So God is always working. God is always working in the person you're becoming. And God is always working in us, in what we are becoming. A community of faith lifted up in his presence. As we become more like Jesus as a community, as a community, the community itself becomes more like him. This community, Galatians, Paul would write the church there. It says we need to focus on the commonality within us, not what makes us separate. We all have different, different tastes, different opinions, different thoughts, and our diversity makes up our strength. What unifies us, what makes us one, is Christ Jesus. Look at the words of Paul here in Galatians. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Hey, there's neither black nor white. There's neither slave nor free. Hey, there's neither right nor left. Hey, there's no Democrat or Republican. No liberal, no conservative. What draws us together, not even gender, makes us exclusive. There's no longer male and female. For you are, what, all one in Christ Jesus. The thread that weaves us together, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, black, white, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, tall, short, thin, wide, whatever you are, the common thread that draws us together is Jesus Christ. And the more the community becomes like Christ, the more we become like him and God works in us. We're meant for community. We're meant to partner with one another. We're not meant to be exclusive. Your relationship with Jesus is not exclusive. What God is doing in you, even in your prison season, is never just to break you out of prison, but it's to strengthen you, to position you, to bless you, to give you a posture in your heart where you now lead others to freedom. And God is working. God is always working. He's working on the person you're becoming. He's working on the people we're becoming. And for that reason, we can be certain. We go back to Philippians 1.6. For this, we are certain. We have full confidence, full trust, 100%. That God, who began the good work within us, it is a good work. The work that God is doing in you is good. It doesn't mean it never hurts, because it often does. It doesn't mean that it won't cost you. Oh, it will cost you. It doesn't mean that it won't change you radically. Oh, it will change you radically. It doesn't mean that we will go back to be the same people we were. No, we will never go back. But God is always working. Even when you're in your prison season. Even when you don't see him, he's working, to quote the song. For this we are certain, that God who began the good work on you will continue his work until it is finally finished. When is the day that God stops working in you? The day that God stops working in you is on that glorious day 
when you stand before him face to face and when your eyes meet those of the master and when he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the presence of your master. That's when God finishes working on you. We never, ever arrive. We never, ever are complete until the day Christ returns, either to when he comes back down to rule this earth in glory or to where we meet him in the clouds in heaven. God is always working. He's always on the clock. He's working on the person you are becoming, and he's working on the community that we are becoming.